Please turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. In God's providence, you probably have noticed that this is kind of a month of baptisms. We had a baptism last week, we just witnessed one now, and we'll have another one next week. And so, as I realized that baptizing our covenant children was going to be something that we spent a lot of time on this week, also in God's providence, I had an extra week in my preaching schedule this spring, and so I'm going to take a break for just one week from our study through the Gospel of John to look at the issue of baptism, particularly as it relates to our covenant children. So I'm going to ask that we read from Romans 4. I will read and ask you to give your careful attention to God's word as I read Romans chapter 4, the first 12 verses. Hear God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What are some of the questions that you are dying to ask God when you see him face to face? We all have those questions. Particularly, I'd like to focus this morning on questions that relate to the scriptures, because as a lifelong student of the scriptures, there are a number of questions that I'm curious about that I struggle to find the answers in regarding scripture. I would like to know the details of how he created the universe. I'm tired of all the disagreement with my brothers and sisters on that issue. I'd really like to know the details. I would like to know what Jesus did between the age of 12 and his early 30s. I'm really curious about that but the scriptures tell us nothing. I would really like to know what he wrote in the dirt when the woman was caught in adultery, but the scriptures don't tell us. As I mentioned last week, I'd love to know what Lazarus experienced in the four days that he was in the tomb. I'd really like to know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. But these are things that the scriptures don't answer. We're left in the dark. And when you think about it, none of those are really that important. None of them really have any impact on how we live our life every day. I'm always amazed at the sufficiency of Scripture 
to reveal to us what we need to know to live life in faith in a fallen world. But I do have one question that I'm dying to ask the Lord, and I will ask him when I get to heaven, that deals with what the scriptures reveal, actually what the scriptures leave out. Because it does seem like it's a significant omission. I would love to ask the Lord when I see him, why didn't you include in the New Testament a very short verse that just says, believers and their children should be baptized? Why didn't he put those words in the New Testament? Why didn't he just clear it up? Because it's been such a divisive issue through the history of the church. Just think back to the time of the Reformation. The the Reformation was such a powerful revival, a transformation of the church, the church getting back to the scriptures, and the Reformation movement was a powerful movement that transformed the world. But within just a few short years, the one movement of the Reformation split into three different paths. The Lutherans, the Reformed, and the Anabaptists. And what divided them? The sacraments, particularly baptism. They were divided over these issues. And so... I wonder, why didn't the Lord make it clear in his word so there'd be no doubt, so that we who all take so seriously the scriptures and believe it's the word of God could be united without any of these disagreements. Even thinking of the church today, of course, whether you should baptize only believers or baptize believers and their children divides most of the evangelical church. And even within our own theological circles, if you keep up to date with what's going on among Reformed churches like ours, Historically, Reformed churches baptized infants as covenant children. But there's a new movement, which I do believe is kind of a mini-revival in the church, where the evangelical church is coming back more and more to the historic Reformed understandings of, of Scripture. And that's great, and that's a wonderful thing. But what's interesting, we've been talking about this, is that old Calvinism was characterized by baptism of infants, but the new Calvinism is very much, a very strong part of that movement, is believes that you should only baptize believers. So even within our close theological circles, it's a, currently a very divisive issue. And I'll admit to you, I know from talking to many of you that there is a, quite a number in our own congregation who even though the PCA believes in baptizing infants, obviously, not everybody in our own congregation would agree with that, that that's the correct interpretation of scripture. So why? Why didn't the Lord put eight simple words in the New Testament so that we wouldn't have to disagree about this? I don't know. I sometimes speculate that maybe he allowed this for our sanctification so that we might really learn to love one another as we struggle to learn the truth in this issue. There is one thing, though, that we all do agree on, no matter whether we believe that infants should be baptized or not. There's one thing that we do agree on. I hope that if you're here this morning, it's because you agree on this one thing, that God only has one opinion on the matter. His word teaches one of those two positions and that he expects us to obey what his word reveals. He requires obedience. And so it's not a small matter. It's not something that we can treat like many Christians do as something unimportant. What we're talking about here is the sign of the covenant of grace. 
We're talking about, as Alex just defined it, the mark of membership in the visible church. It's our responsibility to seek unity, but unity that's in the truth. Unity in the truth, always. And so if we disagree about how to interpret scripture on an important issue like this, it's important that we keep talking, that we keep studying. A sign of a healthy church is that we have an ongoing, serious, diligent study of scripture and that we keep dialoguing about the issue because we know that there is one position that is correct and we're all going to strive to get on the same page with where God is. That it's unity in the truth and unity in love. That we keep this dialogue going in an attitude of familial, family, love, and respect. Healthy churches handle differences like that, and I hope that we will always be that way. I'm going to quote Doug Wilson here, and normally if you know Doug Wilson all is a writer and a scholar, he's not usually quoted as a man who is gentle and kind towards those who disagree with him on doctrines. But he's written a book on, on baptism, which I just read this, this week, and I was really struck by the kind and gentle tone to it. And let me just quote one paragraph from the introduction of that book. He says, we must remember that we are coming to a subject upon which conscientious Christians disagree and disagree strongly. This should not make us hesitate in presenting the truth, but we must at least recall that in discussing the sign of the covenant, we are addressing the least important thing about it. Which is greater, the gold on the altar or the altar which sanctifies the gold? Which is greater, the sign of the covenant or the covenant itself? Those who are visible saints together with us are to be loved for the sake of Jesus Christ, whether or not we believe them to be mistaken on the question of the quote-unquote water that divides. And that's the attitude that we long for and we try to model here. I'm going to apologize a bit in advance for my message. It's going to be a little didactic today, but I do want to help those of you, even if you disagree with our practice, to understand that we are basing this in our understanding of the scriptures. And I want to make it clear to you what I and our church and our denomination believe to be the teachings of the scripture on this. And I hope that if you disagree, that you'll continue in dialogue with us. Let's talk about it. And what's interesting about the sign of the covenant, particularly in baptism, it is something that you can't settle by proof texting. You can't settle it by proof texting. And I think that's a mistake a lot of Christians do. So their idea of studying baptism is to go to a concordance and plug in the word baptism and then see all the verses that make reference to baptism and then look at them all together and then try to come to a conclusion about what the scriptures teach on baptism. If that's how you approach the subject, you're going to miss all the foundational truths that underlie what baptism is and what it's for. We need to step back and look at all of the scripture and not only confine ourselves to the New Testament passages. That's why I turn to Romans 4. You'll notice that in that reading of those verses, we didn't mention the word baptism once. And so if you were doing a concordance study, you wouldn't have come up with this passage. But if you didn't study this passage in order to understand what baptism is about, then you would have missed some of the foundational truths. And that's what I'd like to look at this morning because here... We're not talking about baptism directly in Romans 4, but we're talking about its predecessor, circumcision. Just to review, you probably all know well the argument of Romans 
the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is talking about the gospel. He presents the greatest need of all people, which is to know God, to know your creator. But the creator is a holy God and a just God who absolutely must punish sin. And as Paul comes to the argument in chapter 3, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, no matter if you are a Jew who had the law of God or if you're a Gentile who didn't have the law of God. We're all sinners. Therefore, all of us have no hope of meeting that requirement that God requires, which is perfect righteousness in order to be in a fellowship with a God who is this holy. None of us meets the requirement. And so the good news as Paul builds up to it, begins in verse 21, and this is what he says in chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God requires absolute, perfect righteousness in thought, word, and deed. We all fall far short of that goal. But God has provided his own righteousness, a gift of righteousness, which is received by faith. It's what theologians will call an alien righteousness. We, heard, we used, hear the word alien, we think of science fiction, but that's not what we're talking about here. Alien in the sense that it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to somebody else. Somebody else's righteousness. That's what the gospel is. That somebody else's righteousness is given to me as a gift, and I receive it by faith. That's the good news, as Paul describes it there in verse 21. As Paul goes on, and we won't get there, but in chapter 5, Paul makes it clear that this alien righteousness, this righteousness that belongs to somebody else, is actually the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who became man and lived a perfect life, and his record of righteousness is that alien righteousness which can be given to us so that God looks at us and sees us as righteous and then can embrace us and accept us and love us and give us all the blessings of his kingdom. That's the good news. Well, Paul says, if you notice there in in verse 21, he says, the law and the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament, bears witness to this gift. Paul wasn't teaching anything new. The fulfillment of it it was new, but it's always been the same gospel from the very beginning. And to prove this, this is why in chapter 4, he devotes chapter 4 to Abraham. Because he's talking to Jews and Gentiles and showing that both Jews and Gentiles, this gospel is the only hope of knowing God. And so, particularly for the Jews, he says, let's talk about Abraham, the father of the Old Testament church, so to speak the father of the people of God. On what basis was he accepted into God's kingdom? On what basis was he forgiven? Was it by works? Well, that's where he goes to in verse 3 of chapter 4. He goes to Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says very clearly, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God chose Abraham out of all the heathens, all the sinners in the world. He chose Abraham and he said, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to make you and your descendants my people. I'm going to enter into a covenanted relationship. A relationship based upon the unalterable promise of God. 
And in this covenant relationship I have with you, Abraham, and with your children, I am going to give you a gift of an alien of righteousness, a righteousness that you don't have nor can you produce. And I'm going to give it to you. And Abraham believed God's promise. Now, did he understand all the nuances of that like we do from a New Testament perspective? Of course not. But simply, he believed in God's promise. And it was counted. It was reckoned. It was put to his account. It was imputed to his account, this alien righteousness, which we know was the righteousness of Christ. And so that when God looked at at Abraham, when God looked at Abraham, he saw Christ, the perfect life of Christ. And therefore could embrace Abraham. So in a very real sense, even though it makes us squirm a little bit, Abraham, we can say clearly, Abraham was a Christian. Abraham was a Christian. That's why Jesus could say in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Did he see Christ in all the fullness that we see him? No, but he saw him. And by faith, he received Christ's righteousness. That's why, as we'll see in a moment, in Galatians 3.8, it says that Abraham believed the gospel. He heard the gospel, and he believed the gospel. And he was, based, he was saved based upon that alien righteousness. Then you notice in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he, Paul, he's going to get back to, Abraham, or back to Abraham in a moment, but he addresses David, King David, another supreme example of an old covenant Jew. How was David saved? And he points out that David understood that his righteousness was a gift, that it was an alien righteousness given to him by faith. David understood that because, as he quotes him there in that psalm, he he recognizes that his sin was taken away and a righteousness was given to him so that he might be right with God. Which brings us to verses 9 through 11. And that's where I want to focus the rest of our time. Verses 9 through 11 Paul brings up the sign of the covenant with Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, I am choosing you. You and your descendants will be my people. And I'm going to enter into a covenant relationship with you. And as a sign of that relationship, just like in marriage we give a sign of a ring to symbolize the covenant relationship, he gave a sign to Abraham and to his descendants the sign of circumcision. Now, Most of the covenant promises that God gave in Scripture had some kind of sign associated with them. Let me take you just back one step to Noah. Noah was given a covenant, a promise. God came to Noah and said, I'm going to choose you and your family. And I'm going to destroy the world, but I'm going to save you. And then coming out of that covenant, the big promise of that covenant is that God was going to preserve creation until he could accomplish his redemption, his plan of redemption. And he gave a sign of that covenant. The sign was the rainbow. The rainbow was a sign that God would fulfill his promise. It was an assurance to Noah and his family, God will fulfill his promise. God is faithful. Now that rainbow didn't protect Abraham and his family from a worldwide flood in God's judgment. Just like a rainbow today, if you see one in the sky, it doesn't protect you, does it? It doesn't keep floods or judgment from coming upon you. It's a sign of God's promise. Signs of the covenant don't actually guarantee or protect anything in and of themselves, but they point to the one who does. And so Abraham was given a sign of his covenant relationship with God and its circumcision. 
signs are powerless and meaningless by themselves. But when they're seen as God intends them, they have a powerful purpose. And that's the first thing I want to look at. Abraham's circumcision didn't save him, but it represented God's promise to save him. And Paul wants to make it clear that Abraham being circumcised didn't cause him to be seen as righteous in the sight of God. And he proves it with plain chronology. Because he says, you remember, the Jews would have all easily remembered this, that Abraham actually, Genesis 15, 6, about him believing God and having it reckoned to him as righteousness, that actually occurred, we figure, at least 14 years before he actually was told to circumcise himself and his children. 14 years earlier. So Paul says, plainly, obviously then, being justified by faith, being seen as righteous with an alien righteousness is not something that's dependent on being circumcised because Abraham already had it for a long time before he actually received the sign to accompany it. Righteousness is received by faith, not by works. And that fits into Paul's larger argument in this part of Romans. But I want to change the focus and go and, and, and emphasize a different aspect of that for a second, just to notice that Abraham's circumcision was a believer's circumcision. Much more difficult sign of the covenant than believer's baptism, but still an important sign of the covenant that was added as an assurance to his faith. And so God says to him, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And he goes on to specify, even down to infants eight days older, old and older. In every covenant promise that God gives to his people, every one of them, it includes at some point this phrase, to you and to your children. That was a characteristic clause in every covenant promise that God made to his people. This is for you and for your children. It's in the covenant promises to Noah. It's in the covenant promises to Abraham here. It's in the covenant promises to Moses. It's in the covenant promises to David. This is for you and for your children. And so in a very real sense, what we see happening is the beginning of the church. Now, every theological circle has this debate. When did the church begin? What part in the out plan, you know, outworking of the plan of redemption, when did the church begin? Well, there's in a real sense you could say the church began in eternity past, when God planned the work of redemption and Christ died before the foundation of the world in that sense. Or you could say the church began when God showed grace to Adam and Eve and their children outside the doors of the Garden of Eden. Or you could say that the church began when Noah and his family were separated from the sinful world and delivered through the flood. But in the most technical sense of the word, I think this is where you'd say the church began because this is where God chooses for himself Abraham and his family and he marks them out. He gives them a mark and says, this is my people. This is the visible representation of the kingdom of God on earth. Now the kingdom of God encompasses the entire cosmos, but the visible kingdom of God is where the reign of God is recognized and where people willingly submit to the lordship of God. That's where the kingdom is manifested before a dying and, and rebellious world. And God came to Abraham and said, 
Your family is going to be my people. I will be your God. You'll be my people. And I'm going to give you a sign which marks you. Marks you. Sets you apart from the world. And that mark was circumcision. The covenant community. Now, of course, we know very quickly that not everybody in that covenant community was genuinely saved. I mean, Ishmael was circumcised before Isaac. But Isaac was the one who carried on the line of promise. And always, and of course you don't have to go very far into the Old Testament to realize that within that covenant community of the identifiable people of God, the family of Abraham, as other families grew out of that and as it became a nation, there were many in that covenant community who didn't really believe, but still outwardly they were marked as God's people. And circumcision was the mark of membership. In the Old Testament church, there were two ways to come into the church. Either by profession of faith, like somebody like Rahab, or by birth. Two ways to come into the visible kingdom of God, the visible people of God. By faith, profession of faith, or by birth. Neither one of them guaranteed salvation, as we'll see in a moment. But that's still the case of the church today. You are either join the church and become into the church by profession of faith, or you're born into it. But when you're received into the visible church, you receive the mark of belonging to the covenant community. And that brings me to verses 11 and 12, where Paul very clearly spells out the purpose of the sign. Why did God give Abraham that weird sign of circumcision? This is the purpose. He says, he received the sign of circumcision. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. In other words, Gentile Christians, those who believe without being circumcised, and to make him father of the circumcised who also walk in the footsteps of faith. In other words, Jewish believers, real Christians. He's saying, if you are not circumcised in the flesh, but you believe in Christ, then you are part of the visible church. And if you are circumcised as a Jewish person, but believe in Christ, you are also part of the church. We are one church, not two people. And that's a major message of the New Testament. And so you have the sign. Abraham's family became the family of God. And in the Old Covenant, New Covenant, ultimately be both Jew and Gentile, one people. Well, that's where I need to focus then in on the meaning of the signs. Signs always have meaning. Signs are meaningless and purposeless by themselves, but they have powerful purpose when they point to something. So what does the sign of circumcision point to? Verse 11, Paul makes it very clear, and this is really important, this phrase here. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. What did circumcision represent? It represented the alien righteousness that chapter 3 was talking about. The righteousness that belongs to somebody else that can be imputed to your account. Yes, you receive that righteousness by faith, but the sign pointed to the righteousness, not to the faith. The sign represents the alien righteousness, which as Romans 5 says, is the righteousness of Christ. In other words, what the sign of baptism and circumcision points to is objective, not subjective. It's the gift, not our response to that gift. 
And this is where we come into a major point of disagreement with our Christian brothers. I almost, without exception, when you hear me quote John Piper, I'm quoting him positively. But this is the one subject that I'm going to address where I'm going to quote him as saying something I would disagree with. And this is what he says. Speaking of faith in Christ, he says, We show this faith, we say this faith, and signify this faith, and symbolize this faith with the act of baptism. And I think he misses the point. Because baptism, like circumcision, does not point to faith, it points to the alien righteousness. That's what it represents. That's why St. Augustine said that the sacraments are visible words. That baptism is a visible word. It's the gospel visualized, not our response to the gospel. That's why from this point on, and I wish I had time to expand upon this, but I don't. But from this point on, the Old Testament very quickly makes the connection between the sign of circumcision and circumcision of the heart. It's a very common phrase in the Old Testament. That circumcision of the flesh pointed to circumcision of the heart. And what circumcision of the heart is, as that plays out in Scripture, is God's sovereign work in saving us. Let me give you one example from the first five books, the books of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you may live. Circumcision pointed to an act of God in the heart that makes faith and repentance and justification and adoption and sanctification possible. That's what circumcision pointed to, a work, a sovereign work of God in the heart. And later, as you move into the prophets, toward the end of the Old Testament, the prophets repeatedly condemned the Israelites for believing that merely having the sign of circumcision made them right with God, made them righteous in God's sight. The prophets condemned them for this over and over. Let me give you one example from Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. All the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. They have the outer circumcision, but their heart remains unregenerated. And Paul basically says the same thing. Nothing has changed. He's talking about what a true Jew is, whether you're talking about an Old Testament Jew or a New Testament Jew. This is what he says in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Same message. And so throughout the Old Testament, circumcision is spoken of as a sign that points to the saving work of God. Now what's interesting, and I wish I had time to lead you through the study, but what's interesting is if you follow what circumcision of the heart is, it, in some passages it represents cleansing, and sometimes it represents redemption, sometimes it represents repentance, but these are all different aspects of the one work of God, how he saves us. And so Abraham, we notice that distinction. Abraham re- received a believer's circumcision. He was circumcised. He received the sign of the covenant after believing. 
but his son Isaac received it before believing. Because if you understand that circumcision didn't represent the faith of Abraham, but represented the alien righteousness given to Abraham, then you understand that the timing of the giving of the sign isn't nearly so important. Because it represents what God either has done or must do to save. It's his work. In the New Testament, that's why you understand why Romans 4 is important to understanding baptism. Because in the New Testament, baptism has all the same meanings to a word. Baptism represents all the things that circumcision represented in the Old Covenant. It represents God's work of circumcising our hearts so that we can be justified by faith and so that we can walk in obedience and love. And that's why Paul connects the two signs in that great passage in Colossians that you read responsively earlier in the service. Let me read to you again verses 11 and 12. Now again, remember that Paul is writing to Gentiles primarily, people who had not received the physical sign of circumcision. And this is what he says. In Christ, you were circumcised, he says, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Right there, he connects the two and shows that they mean the same thing and explains why baptism has taken the place of circumcision. It means the same thing. It's the sign of the new covenant, which fulfills the sign of the old covenant. And that's why even John Piper will admit, and I'll quote him exactly here, he says, it is probably right to say that baptism has replaced circumcision as the mark of being part of the people of God. Now, I wish I had time to get into why he and I still disagree on the topic if he agrees to what I think is one of the most important points. But that is so huge that you see that. As Jesus and Paul made it clear, we who put our faith in Christ Jesus are the true children of Abraham. And we are the heirs of the covenant. That's the beautiful language of Galatians 3. Let me read that to you. It says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The church today is the family of Abraham. And we are the heirs of those covenant promises. And so we receive the sign of the covenant, which has been changed from circumcision now to baptism. But the meaning of the sign remains the same. And so it begs the question, who should receive the sign? And just a couple of minutes to close on that note. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood before thousands of, of Jewish people who were coming to faith. It's important to recognize this is in Jerusalem and these were Jewish people coming from out of the old covenant church, so to speak. And he's preaching the gospel about this alien righteousness that is available as a gift to anyone who will put their faith in Christ. And at the end of his gospel presentation, He says to those listening, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. For the promise is for you 
and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God, God calls to himself. Now we argue over that verse all the time, and I'll be the first to admit to you that does not prove that baptism should be given to children. All I'm asking you to notice there is that is the covenant language. That's consistent with every covenant promise ever given to God's people. The promise is for you and for your children. That God, when he saves us, he brings us in not just as individuals, he brings in our families. And our families receive the sign of the covenant. And that sign doesn't guarantee that any of us are saved. But it points us to the only alien righteousness that's available that is only the, the only hope of being saved. Like Abraham, these believers on the day of Pentecost received the sign of the new covenant after believing. But what about their children? And that's one of the places where the scriptures are silent. We don't know. It doesn't say that on that occasion they went and baptized their, their children as well. But just to ask you to, to consider for a moment, these Jewish believers would have expected the sign of the covenant to be given to their children. They would have strongly expected that. That's been the practice all the way back to the days of Abraham. That when somebody came into the covenant community, the sign of the covenant was given to both believers and to their children. So when Peter says that this promise is for you and for your children, and then he says, here's the new sign of the covenant, what do you think people expected them to to do with that sign of the covenant? Of course they expected them to apply it to entire households because that's how the sign of the covenant was always applied. Out of the nine baptisms we have in the New Testament, there's nine baptisms where we have individuals named and say that they were baptized. In a couple of those occasions, we have single people like the Ethiopian eunuch where there's no family to, to, to deal with. But in three of those nine, we have clear statements that this person was baptized and their household was baptized as well. The Philippian jailer, Lydia, Stephanus, they were baptized and their household was baptized. Now again, we get into these Arguments about, well, how you can't prove that there were infants or young children in those households. You're right, I can't. All I'm asking you to notice, it doesn't prove anything, but I'm just asking you to notice that's consistent with the way the covenant community works. That when believers believe, they bring their families with them into the visible community of faith. And so the New Testament, in that sense, shows that the practice was consistent. Robert Booth, in his book on baptism, says, in every case where the apostles administered baptism to the known head of a family, they also administered it to his entire household. And what I always say is, if you're a Jewish believer, you're a Jewish Christian in the first century, and this is what you've been used to your whole life, and the apostles come to you and say, here's the new sign of the covenant. You know, if you weren't supposed to give it to your children, you'd see... You'd see instructions, commandments, harsh comments everywhere through the New Testament saying, listen, I know that you're used to giving the sign of the covenant to your children, but don't do it anymore. Things are different in the New Covenant. But you don't get any hint of that anywhere. And so I think it's safe to assume that they did what they always did and what they expected to do. Children were members of the Old Testament church. That's clear. Children were members, baptized, circumcised members of the Old Testament. They received the sign of the covenant. They were considered members of the Old Testament church. Why would the new covenant exclude them? The new covenant doesn't contract the blessings of God. It expands the blessings of God. 
Baptism is given to men and women. That's an expansion. Why would children be excluded? When I was a teenager and I was a new believer, I was told by a preacher that I should go to the geographical location where I gave my life to the Lord and that I should take a stake and drive it into the ground there. Now, I don't know if you got saved in a sanctuary. I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, <laughs> the idea is that you mark the space where you made your commitment, you professed faith, where you gave your life to the Lord. And that when you had those days of doubt and weak faith and struggles with sin and suffering, that you would go back and look at that stake and say, I'm a Christian because I gave my life to the Lord there. I think that was misguided, probably well-intended, but misguided. Because when Abraham was circumcised, that didn't say to the world, I got saved. What that said to the world was, here is how anyone can be saved. What Abraham's circumcision said was, the Lord is our righteousness. The great words of the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord is our righteousness. That's the gospel. And the sign of the covenant is a visualization of the gospel. That's our hope. My hope is not in some decision I made when I was 16 years old. My hope is in Christ. Circumcision points to Christ. Baptism points to Christ. The only way to have an alien righteousness before a holy God and to avoid his eternal judgment is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The Lord is our righteousness. That's what will strengthen your faith when your faith is weak. That's what will take away the doubts when you're doubting. That's what will give you strength when you fight sin. You say, I am a baptized member of God's people, and my hope is in the righteousness of Christ that my baptism represents. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the covenant. We don't deserve it. And we thank you that you have marked us as belonging to yourself. Lord, we don't all agree about what we just talked about. But Lord, we want to. We want to know your mind. We want to know your heart. We want to do what you've required of us. All of us do. Help us to find unity in the truth. Help us to love and respect one another. And Lord, as we move forward, may we move forward confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.